I think within the media that we all are, are hit with gives us all sorts of messages on you know calories on restaurant menus, uh, wider vegan, vegetarian, gluten free, yeah. other specialist options out there. It's saying manufacturers are are responding and adapting. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for joining the podcast. My name's Laura Gilbank. I'm a business development manager at Columbus UK. I'm joined by Jim Laird, who is the CEO of Enough, and also my colleague Andrew Newton, who is one of our food consultants within Columbus UK. Jim, I'd like you to introduce yourself first, if that's okay. Yeah, hi, Laura, and thanks for identifying this requirement for diversification in our food systems. Some people call it a protein transition. I think it's more protein diversification. Yeah, I'm Jim Laird. I'm CEO of and co-founder of Enough. Uh, Andrew and I just spoke. I've worked in the food industry for 30 years, and that started with running frozen food businesses for Birdseye and large chicken factories in the early 90s. I moved through roles, including running the, the brand Quorn internationally in the late noughties, and I've also done roles in fresh produce. Excellent. Thanks, Jim. Drew, do you just want a quick hello and introduce your background? Yes, yeah, certainly will do. So, as Laura said, Andrew Newton, but aka Drew. Good afternoon. So, I'm a Business Central Functional Consultant with Columbus. Prior to joining Columbus, very similar to Jim. So, I've done sort of 37 years in the food business, 27 of them years with a company called Samworth Brothers through a variety of roles in there through to, to butchery, through to uh, commercial account management, continuous improvement and ERP implementation. So, yeah, you could say I've got a few hats that I've worn during my career, you could say. But, yeah, nice to be here today. Excellent. Thanks, Drew. So just really the talking points for today is, is around sustainable food manufacturing because we're seeing this drive from our consumers wanting more sustainable products. What is the impact of that on manufacturers today for the future of sustainable foods, the rise of veganism, so to speak, and other new food rangers? Any yeah. thoughts? Well, Laura, before I come in there, can I just, maybe just to give a bit of context of enough? So we grow abundant microprotein, and abundant microprotein takes sugar and it ferments it to create protein and fibre that can be used in a whole range of alternatives, if you like, but it's alternatives to things containing animals. So we can make meat alternatives, we can make fish alternatives. And when I say we, our route to market is B2B ingredients. We do support our customers with product application capabilities to help them make some really delicious foods that, um, and as I say, can be meat alternatives or fish. And so we're playing in this massive market where 98, 99% of it comes from animals right now. But as you say, it's changing. Columbus is helping us with our ERP system. We're building what we think will be one of the biggest protein factories of any nature globally. That's amazing. Initially 10,000 tonnes, but we'll grow to 60,000 tonnes. And when we get to 60,000 tonnes, it will be a cow's worth of protein every couple of minutes. I think consumer habits are changing massively. And I think at the last sort of three or four years, you know, people talk about veganism, vegetarianism. They're all very, very different things, I suppose, different scales of veganism, but also, you know, when people talk about just not meat for food, you talk about animal products for a lot of other things, clothing, medical things, cosmetics, you know, it's a a really challenging competitive market out there at the minute. I'd agree with that, Drew. I think there's that change of what's driving us as consumers and it impacts both the most, well, there's a range of things, isn't there? There's cost taste, yeah. ethics, sustainability, and and each of those impact the most worthy vegetarians or the most voracious carnivores um, and just at different levels. Picking up on COP27 and enough was 
lucky to be one of four companies out there in the first food pavilion at a COP. We were alongside Impossible Foods, Upfield, who make Flora and Oatly. But that sustainability piece, I think it's, it's massively important. I don't think even still, even though there is a climate crisis, that most consumers are buying stuff because of sustainability. I think they're listening. It's changing. And, and again, the other part of it, and Drew, you said it, health. And again, I don't think there's endless studies saying that we eat too much of what's bad for us. But again, we all still eat it. Um, yeah, true. Uh, so I think ultimately what's still driving consumers, and it's certainly a 2022 and 23 dynamic, is that we've got a financial crisis in our hands as well, and people want stuff they can afford. How are these factors affecting food manufacturers, do you think? What are the drivers? I think, you know, at the minute, as Jim pointed out, we're going through a global crisis, not just in terms of cost, but, you know, energy at the moment is just killing businesses, especially people in the chilled and the frozen aspects, you know, in terms of chilling, freezing, that sort of thing. It's just so high. But again, raw materials, not just price, but availability. The the war in Ukraine has had a massive impact, not only on feeding the population of the world, but feeding the animals of the world as well. So, you know, again, it all comes down to cost. and, And as Jim's just said, what people are willing to pay for their food, for their product. How does it affect food manufacturers? Well, every food manufacturer's job is to meet the needs of consumers within that drivers of whether it be cost, sustainability, ethics, climate concerns. It's clear that what consumers want is switching and it's gone away from that simple meat and two veg. And so I think in our sector, the food industry is is making ever better versions of meat alternatives. And that food value chain needs firstly high quality ingredients to make great tasting foods and then brands and retailers to offer that to the consumer. And I think within the media that we all are, are hit with gives us all sorts of messages on you know calories on restaurant menus, uh, wider vegan, vegetarian, gluten-free, yeah. other specialist options out there. It's saying manufacturers are, are responding and adapting. I come back to the, the cost point. Uh, quite often when something new comes in, we see that it's expensive. In the case of alternative meat, when it first hit McDonald's or Burger King's shelf. A vegan Whopper was maybe 20% more expensive than a, a standard Whopper. And and if that was the case, not many people buy it. Um, no. I think what's good is actually we're starting to see price parity and we're starting to see that the alternatives are not more expensive. And it just it makes it a normalised choice for people. And I think that's what food manufacturers are making sure they give customers what they want. And, and they give them no compromise choices. So no compromise in terms of tastes as good as animal and no compromises, it doesn't cost any more. What can food manufacturers do to meet changing consumer demands? Food will remain massively personal to us all. Manufacturers need to keep it relatively simple. Uh, they need to retain consumer trust with transparency and ingredients and simple ingredient lists. I think that transition of what's going on is massively, it's not dissimilar to changes in other industries. So, we, you know, with transport, we came away from horse and cart to yeah. <laughs> petrol engines and then latterly to electric vehicles. And I think what helped there is presumably the, the petrol engine gave a bit, a bit of an advantage relative to that horse and cart. And similarly, the electric vehicle gives something else as well. Maybe it's not always obvious. I think governments have helped and we're all seeing that eventually governments start to encourage that disruption and petrol engines gets banned in 2035. What can the food manufacturers do is make great tasting food. It can't cost the earth. It's got to be good for health, good for the planet. I think a key thing as well is they've got to be flexible and ready to change and embrace change because you can carry on down the same road all day long, but they get left behind by other people who've got that flexibility, that innovation, that drive to move forward. So, you know, you've, you've got to be of that sort of mindset that you've got to stick with it 
You've got to look at what consumers want. You've got to look 12 months ahead. Can't look at tomorrow. You've got to be right up there. And I think they are being flexible. And big food companies are, are acknowledging the change. We build our facility alongside a cargo factory and the CEO of Cargill, um, Dave McLennan, has said that alternative meat will cannibalize his protein business. So they're not resisting it. I think big ag is showing they're, they're flexible. Uh, others such as Tyson, JBS, all the big meat companies, they've rebranded themselves from meat companies to protein companies. So I think you've got to be flexible, as Drew says, and got to adapt to the consumer. And do you think they should consider other things, i.e., for example, Columbus provide technology solutions? Should they only be focusing on technology or focusing on the bigger picture? In food manufacturing and manufacturing generally, it's been the same throughout. It's innovate or die. And innovation yeah. is hard. And so you have to you work hard at it and you have to adapt to what's there. But nobody's standing still. The horse and cart is not, not the transport sector it used to be. And I know for you, Drew, speaking from old food manufacturing to the new way of doing things, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, all businesses, ultimately, they have to reduce costs. I mean, whether that's through labour, through waste, you know, it's all about reducing that cost so they can give the customer a product that's reasonably prized, you know. And, and again, looking at the process that enough have got, they've got a futuristic production plan that hopefully will reap them benefits in terms of reducing waste, reducing labour, you know. And as I said to Jim before we started, I look at my history in in food as potentially you know very high you know coming from a meat background very high labor intensive really high cost raw materials and again high wastage businesses of the future need to move to a newer approach you know reducing labor costs reducing raw material costs reducing waste utilizing renewables that they can create themselves with you know solar panel roofs and recycling water and it's just about looking outside the box you know looking what we did yesterday is potentially not the right way of doing things let's let's look at doing something different and i think what enough are doing is a prime example of that is food production of the future let's say they do have to embrace technology enough's an example of resource efficiency within our role we also have to recognize we don't need to go out there and alienate anybody and certainly that's not our personality or style. And people talk about new technology. Does it disrupt stuff? Well, actually, the bit it doesn't disrupt is that at the start of this value chain, we'll always be the farmer. So there's a little piece around, Drew, as you say, some of the jobs will change. And I think in 10, 20 years, there won't be the same number of jobs in abattoirs and slaughterhouses, mm. but there will still be the same reliance of farming. One of the things at COP27 is about just transition, you know, in the same way as the just transition of the oil industry. It was looking after the people who have been in fossil fuels. Well, I think there's a just transition as well of making sure there's no losers, because if there is a loser, it becomes problematic. And I think the, the bit that where there's no loser in alt protein is we still rely on the farmers to grow the crops that, that create the sugar that we ferment, for example, or and others growing soya and pea and other bits and pieces and making sure that, that we do it. In a, in a collaborative manner, it's going to be essential to make sure that this change or diversification of the protein mm. landscape works well. Excellent. Thanks, Jim. Any Anything else to add? As a whole, in terms of meat-free and vegan, you know, I, I have looked at a few statistics because they are quite eye-watering. We're actually slaughtering 200 million animals per day around the globe. That's like 72 billion a year. It's just, it is, it's, it's eye-watering sort of statistics when you, when you really sort of look into it. I think for me, I come from a meat background, I eat meat, but I think to actually start moving and having meat-free days, you've got to walk before you can run. And I think there's a journey for people, but I hope that's just sort of taking something from this is 
personally, I will look at reducing my intake of meat. And I just think it makes you more aware of where everything that we do, where it comes from and, and how it impacts on the on the globe. So, Drew, you'll only start to change that when the product that you get offered as alternative is good enough. And I think that's what's happening. It's getting better all the time. I heard a nice quote the other day that, you know, you can't make the animal products any better. They are what they are. Mm. On the alternative products, they're getting better every day. And that's, yeah. a, that's a nice thing. So if you haven't tried it for a while, give it a go. Um, I think it's uh, it might surprise you. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you're probably right. When I when I was back in Samworth, we did sort of launch some of the Wicked Chef and some of the uh, Wicked Kitchen and Plant Chef products into uh, with Tesco. So yeah, it's been a few years since I have dabbled and tried some of the plant-based stuff. I'm sure they have in terms of texture and flavour. I'm sure they've come a long way in the, the last sort of three or four years. Well, can't you make the protein look like if you have a burger and you want it pink in the middle? Can't you make it look like that? Is that correct? My understanding. I think in ten years' time, then you won't know the difference we've done some great work in the last you know we're a bulk ingredient manufacturer we work with people and we did a great factory trial uh start of last week we were making chicken fillets and chicken strips and as i say john who's joined us and he was he's a bit of a poultry expert he said he can't tell the difference now wow. maybe well, he's being, yeah. maybe he's maybe he's being, being nice but as i say drew i think it's, it's inching forward the other bit is cop 27 is saying 37% of methane emissions in the US, 33% of methane emissions globally, and about 20% of carbon is from intensive animal farming. And we have got a climate emergency. So I think there is a call to action and a need to change. Thanks for listening to the podcast around sustainable manufacturing. If you'd like to find out more, you can view our blogs, guides and other podcasts on our site at columbusglobal.com.